welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of kick-ass bicycle technology systems. Now with Quark Prime, you can hit the ground running. Bicycle makers are shipping bikes with a new Quark Prime power-ready crankset. Add the affordable Quark D0 power meter spider and you're ready to achieve new personal bests. Ask your bicycle dealer about Quark Prime. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Fast Talk. I'm Trevor Connor here with my usual partner, Kaylee Fretz. Hey, Trevor. How are you doing, Kaylee? I'm doing well. And today we have a special guest who you might have remembered from an episode getting back to, I think, the fall or the, uh, the summer for us. We have with us Rob Pickles, who I know from back in the days of the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine, but is now the head physiologist at Pearl Izumi and will always be known as the illustrious Mr. Pickles. I have known Rob for, wow, a long time now. A long time now, um, We've known each other from when you worked at the CU Sports Center. We've known each other from when you were at BCSM as the, the physiologist there. And I was that annoying little cyclist who just sat around and asked you questions. <laughs> it, it's funny, Trevor, that I've known you when you were an athlete. I've worked with you in that professional sort of capacity. And I've also worked with you sort of as a colleague, as a researcher and a, a, another physiologist. Uh, and so... It's been, a, it's been a good few years for us. And I will say in 10 years, that's possibly the first time I've gotten a compliment from Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very used to Rob testing me and just shaking his head. And I go, what does that mean? He goes, it's, no. And walks away. It, it, it's better not knowing. <laughs> <laughs> so we are here to talk about heat management. It's the summer, you're going to be doing a lot of races in really hot weather, and that can affect you. And we're all trying to figure out how to deal with the heat. So let's talk a little bit about why heat is a factor, how it affects you, and then we're going to go into different strategies for managing heat. With that, let's make you fast. So as usual, uh, I will be playing the the village idiot around this table today and trying to trying to sort of move things forward. So let's let's just get started here. I know from personal experience that when I go and climb Sunshine, which is a climb here in Boulder, uh, in the middle of the afternoon in August, I do not go as fast as when I climb Sunshine uh, early in the morning on a nice March day when it's fifty five degrees. I guess let's start from the with, with a very very basic question, which is why is that? Why, when I overheat, do I climb and perform worse on a climb like Sunshine? For most people, it's probably because they're overtrained by the time August rolls around with all the beautiful <laughs> summer riding weather, and, and people are feeling real good back in March. They're after, not too fatigued. Not Kaylee's but, uh, problem. <laughs> after yeah, after covering the entire Tour de France, that is not my problem. <laughs> People might seem complex, and sometimes we like to think that we are, but for the most part, we're just fairly simple machines. And uh, as a machine, uh, we take energy, and uh, out of that comes work. Um, the problem is we're not overly efficient. When you're out there pedaling, um, you're burning a lot of calories, and most of those calories are actually going to heat production. Depending on how efficient somebody is, probably between 20 and 25% is actually going to putting force to the pedals. Uh, and the rest of those calories that you're burning, they're being lost as heat. That becomes more or less difficult to manage depending on the environment that you're in. And when you're climbing slowly up a canyon on a, on a sunny, hot day with very little breeze, that environment makes it very difficult to move all that extra heat that you're building up. And so it's 100% expected that on those hot days, you're definitely going to be going slower. And uh, we see that both in... Uh, Cycling, we see that in the laboratory, we see that in running, and that's a very real measurable effect. And we are going to be talking later today about ways to solve some of the problems. So, so some of the ways that you can keep your core temperature down, but we're going to, I think, we, like I said, we're going to start with, with the broad the broad questions. I see the next thing on the board in front of me is core temperature, and that it sounds to me like that might be the primary issue here is that core temperature is rising. Is that correct? Core temperature is, is very much rising. And, you know, the reason for that is all that heat that you're producing, out of that equation, we subtract what you can put into the environment, either through evaporation or radiant heat loss, conductive heat loss. 
And whatever we can't get into the environment, well, our body tissue has to absorb. You know, we're, we're full of a lot of water, and so we can absorb a lot of that heat. But when we do that, our core temperature starts rising. And the body is very astute, and it wants to keep us in a good, safe, protected place. And, uh, we're constantly monitoring things like core temperature. And if that temperature is rising too quickly or getting too high, the body will lower its workload. It will slow you down so that you're doing less work, so that you're producing less heat. And it keeps sort of that temperature gauge out of the red zone and in a good, safe place for you to continue riding. So it's not so, that there's some sort of physical change. Well, I guess there would be a physical change. Like when you overheat, it's not that that, that itself makes you less efficient. It's that your body is actually shutting itself down, basically. So I did... Um to make sure I could keep up uh, or try to keep up with Rob today, I did a little research on this coming into this podcast. And I actually went back to possibly the most referenced study on heat acclimation and, and dealing with heat. And, and so this is from 1993 out of Denmark. And one of the really interesting things they found in that study was whether you are acclimated or not, they were, they were having these athletes time trial to exhaustion. And the point of exhaustion was always at the same core temperature. It was, you know, with very small uh, variance, it was 39.5 degrees Celsius. They hit that temperature and they shut down. And yes, Kelly, I know that was Celsius. I'm Canadian. 103.1 degrees Fahrenheit. Are you happy now? <laughs> I am very happy. <laughs> so that's what you're trying to deal with. And what they say in the study is there is a lot of research showing that at that, right about that temperature, there are biochemical changes in our body. We rely on enzymes to keep our bodies functioning. Those enzymes start breaking down at 39, right around that 39.5 degrees. So our bodies have a way of saying, we don't want to go above this temperature. You will die. So we're going to stop you. And that you experience as fatigue. You just can't go hard. Anymore. I mean, 103.1. I mean, that, that's getting into the range where if you have a fever, like you, you're starting to look at going to the hospital. Right. I mean, that's we're getting into a range where you're potentially doing damage to what do brain damage and things like that. It, it's certainly possible. Heat stroke is typically thought to be brought on at about 41 degrees Celsius or 105.8 degrees Fahrenheit. And so nice. uh, that's why we do want to make sure that we're keeping these temperatures below those uh, in a lot of research. There is an upper limit of 40 degrees Celsius or, uh, what, 104 degrees Fahrenheit, where researchers aren't really willing to push subjects past that point anymore, even if they can, to make sure that they stay in a nice, safe place. So, yeah, we're talking about dangerous situations for sort of the, the contuation of life. So, it's, yeah, it's your body protecting itself. And, that, and that, the result of that is decreased performance, right? Because... The only way that your body can make you produce less heat and therefore keep your, your core temperature underneath that sort of <laughs> death zone is to prevent you from producing as much work, basically. And the, the issue you're dealing with when it's hot outside is nature does not like a gradient. That is possibly one of the, the greatest rules of science. So if the external environment is very cold and you're generating heat, it's very easy to get that heat out, out of your body and have it cross this gradient to the cold environment. When it's hot outside and you have less of a gradient, it gets much, much harder to get rid of that heat, to remove it from your body. Exactly. You know, initially at the onset of exercise, we, we do things that are going to help us remove heat. We're going to increase the blood flow to our skin, which helps us radiate heat away from our body. We start sweating, which helps us evaporate heat. So there's a lot of different mechanisms that we can go through to remove heat. But if that heat production is so much greater than the removal capacity, like you're saying, the only way to deal with that then is to slow down and stop producing as much heat. So another important thing to know about when you're talking about the physiology of managing heat, in a lot of the research, they, they talk about two different physiological responses uh, that they're trying to manage. One is what we were just talking about, uh, that rise in core temperature, making sure that the core temperature doesn't get too high. Another one they talk a lot about is cardiovascular strain. When you are not exercising in the heat, a vast majority of your blood flow can be just going to those exercising muscles to fuel your muscles. When you are exercising in the heat, 
you now have an additional strain of getting blood to the skin so that you can sweat. So that takes blood away from the muscles, and you have to work harder to keep getting the fuel and the oxygen to the muscles. Then if you are dehydrating, you have a further strain that basically your blood volume is dropping. When people talk about cardiac drift, the end result of all this is you will see at a given wattage, your heart rate go up and up and up and up as your heart is working harder and harder to get muscle or blood to the, the working muscles. However, a lot of the research that at least I read showed that it was really more the rise in core temperature that ultimately shut you down, that our body is still actually very good at, maintain, at managing that cardiovascular strain. So your heart rate will go up. But it's going to be able to maintain those mechanisms um, far longer than the core temperature. So it's the core temperature, not the cardiovascular strain, that's generally going to shut you down. You know, and when we're looking at that, um, the body is really good at um, at sort of managing uh, where things are going. And if we take this all the way back to caveman days, we need to run away from the enemy. And in a sense, when we're exercising, that's potentially what the body is going back to. And non-essential organs are going to be shut down in the pursuit of maintaining our muscles. And so we can end up in a place where we're even reducing blood flow to the gut, to the intestine. You don't need intestines if you're about to get eaten uh, (laughs) to your kidneys. And so if we take this to the, the truly extreme and we're trying to exercise really hard in a dehydrated state on a hot day, then we can end up with a little bit of kidney damage or a little bit of GI issues because of that, because the body wants to send as much to the muscle and the skin as possible. And and that hot variable that's thrown in there that it means that we need to send blood to the skin really places that stress that you could have otherwise been sending that blood to your organs uh, and that need for thermoregulation is pulling it away from there. Yeah. So, Rob, uh, when we were off mic earlier, you, you used the term anticipatory regulation. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Care to explain? Yeah. Essentially, it's that the body is smart. You know, we've been talking about reaching these high core temperatures, but, you know, with the theory of anticipatory regulation that really came out of Tim Noakes' lab, um, if, if any readers or listeners have heard mm-hmm. that, but then also uh, Ross Tucker, who is a, a very well-known uh, researcher in these areas. And essentially, um, it's not necessarily crossing that threshold of core temperature. It's the body sensing that the heat that it's storing related to the rise in core temperature, if that is increasing too quickly, the body will slow itself down to prevent being in a bad place before you're ever in the bad place. Mm. So the way that they did this was they really they set up two studies. And in the first one, they held everybody at a constant workload. And uh, you had to pedal offhand, I don't remember, uh, that 200 watts I'll make up. And the core temperature of individuals, it increased over time as we would expect it to. And like Trevor said, um, you know, once they crossed a, a certain boundary, oh, fatigue set in. They got too hot. It wasn't because they had run out of carbohydrate. It wasn't all the other reasons that fatigue can occur. It was because their core temperature was too high. And then they did something different. They, they asked the individuals to, to ride at a certain rating of perceived exertion. So they asked them how hard it felt. And on a scale that goes to 20, They asked them to ride at a 16, but it was up to them how hard they rode. They measured the workload for the first few minutes of that. And over time, as the person tried to maintain that 16 out of 20 effort level, their workload slowly decreased throughout the trial. Now, their core temperature held in a good spot throughout most of that trial. And so what they're proposing is that by lowering workload over time, they were managing their core temperature. They also did that in hot versus cool environments. And in the hot environment where their core temperature ought to have gone up more quickly, what actually happened was their workload decreased more quickly. And so even though they were maintaining a 16 workload, they were pedaling less and less hard, but it still felt hard and it still maintained their core temperature. So I'll take a quick step back here. You would think it's a really simple answer to the question, what causes fatigue? But it's actually really heavily researched right now. And there are 
a whole variety of factors that can contribute to fatigue. One of the biggest ones being that core temperature. You hit it, you hit that certain temperature, you shut down. But, and Rob, I think there's a lot of the research you're talking about. There's been some really interesting recent research where they say, actually, ultimately, the cause of fatigue is mental. That's a big part of it. Meaning our minds want to prevent us from doing permanent damage to our body. So it has all these different ways of gauging, okay, your glycogen's depleting, and that's a bad thing because then your brain's going to shut down, or your core temperature is getting too high, and ultimately your brain is going to shut you down before you hit that point of doing damage. So that's why you are seeing a lot of these perceptual effects on power production, on core temperature, to your brain trying to keep you within a limit that's not going to do damage. I'm assuming we're talking kind of deep brain stuff here. I mean, this right. is all, this is clearly not frontal lobe. Yeah, <laughs> this is not looking in the mirror and yeah. going, "I can do this. I can go harder." And that's no, this- that's one of the biggest things that I've had to deal with over time. Right, as we start talking about these perception trials, and people say, "Oh, I'll just will myself to go harder," and and that's not necessarily the case. I think one of the most interesting studies that's out there, and I think that this really um, changed how I felt about thermal regulation and, and made me interested in this science, is a, a study that was done by a guy named Paul Castle, where they used deception to deceive people as to what was actually going on. And In short, it was a study where there was three different trials. One of those trials was a, a cool condition, and they had people do a cycling time trial, and uh, they did great. There was another uh, condition where it was hot, and they were shown an accurate core temperature. They were told that it was hot. Lo and behold, they didn't do nearly as well as they had in the cool condition. Then in the third condition, the third trial, they were deceived, and it was another hot condition, um, but they were lied to. They were told it was cooler than it was, and they were shown that their core temperature was actually lower than it was. And lo and behold, they didn't perform like the hot condition before. They performed like the cool condition before. And so this goes back to that brain sort of integrating everything that it has, all the knowledge that it has around itself, trying to maintain a good uh, you know, place, a good safe place. And if we're lied to, and, and it's, again, it's not that you can lie to ourselves, hmm. but if we have inaccurate sort of information, then the body will respond to that inaccurate information and alter our performance. Similar to the concept of placebo, right? Exactly. Very much similar to the concept of placebo. Hmm. And there's been a lot of interesting discussion of of placebo effect and things like that recently. Uh, I see on the board in front of us, which is our little uh, list of things to talk about, mouthwash (laughs) and pouring water over your head, which I think are related to this this concept of potentially deceiving your own brain, right? right? Uh, Someone explain mouthwash to me. Yeah. So testing this, this concept of perception, there's been a few studies where they tried cooling the mouth of the individuals to see if it affected performance. One study uh, used basically an ice slushy mm-hmm. that they would swirl around in their mouth and then they would spit it out so they wouldn't ingest it. Another one, they didn't have any brands, but they basically used mouthwash. So it was a menthol-containing mouthwash that would cool their mouth and then they would spit it out. And they certainly saw, just, just like Rob was saying, it reduced discomfort from the heat. So they were doing these time trials or doing these tests in hot conditions. It would reduce their discomfort, um, and it would also lower their, their rate of perceived exertion. Yeah. And in the case of the ice slushy, you actually saw some improvement in their time trial performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that stuff stemmed from, you know, some of the original pre-cooling research that's out there. When everything is going into the gut, right, it does it through the mouth. And when we talk about swirling carbohydrate in your mouth can help improve performance, well, we have cold sensors in our mouth as well. And so if we're swirling a cool liquid in there, we're activating those cold sensors And the body assumes that we're going to be getting a cold liquid or ice or something into our gut, which is going to help lower our core temperature. And right away, it can start sort of increasing the workload because of the assumption that it's making. Now, if we spit that water out, we're not actually getting the cooling sensation or the the actual physical cooling. Um, And therefore, in a sense, we're overriding. And that's where we need to be really careful with things. Because you're tricking your body into potentially going into 
danger zone. Exactly. And that's where menthol comes in too, where um, menthol actually stimulates the cold receptors. Xylitol is a sugar that does this as well, and, and they're ingredients in gums. It's why we get that cooling sensation when we have our winter mint gum. <laughs> um, it, it's an actual stimulation of those cold sensors. It works in the mouth, and it also works on the body. You can topically apply menthol, and you don't actually get cooler, but because your body perceived you were cooler because you stimulated those neurons, the body will increase workload a little bit, heat storage will increase, but there's really no physiological cooling that's going on. So we very much see changes within the body based on, I mean, you could call it a placebo, but you really are stimulating nerves. Hmm. And I'll say one of the interesting things about some of this research on this perception and deception is, at least the couple that I read, they actually bring up the ethical question of, is this a good thing to do? Because our brains have these mechanisms to shut us down to prevent damage. So if we override them, do you get yourself in trouble? And and I had that experience. Tour of the Gila 2012, I got really sick the night before the first stage. I was in and out of the bathroom all night, so I started the stage severely dehydrated, Uh, was stupid enough to race in the heat for four hours. And when I got to the the finish line, I don't know how I got to the finish line, Mm -hmm. Apparently, I was standing by the Gatorade table trying to open a Gatorade. This woman saw me, grabbed me, walked me over to the medical tent. My blood pressure was 70 over nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to get three IV bags. They almost took me to the hospital. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you shouldn't be doing that stuff to yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as Kaylee said, we have these safeguard mechanisms in place. And when we start sort of altering our perception or or doing things to alter where those safeguards kick in, then we're just bringing ourselves that much closer to the danger zone. And, you know, I definitely cannot uh, recommend that people do things to alter these because we want to ultimately, what's more than performance is is being healthy and being in a good, safe place. And uh, really no performance is worth uh, heat stroke or other negative consequences that can come. With the thermal regulation, this is somewhat dangerous things that we're talking about. So you can trick your body with mouthwash, with <laughs> with swirling cold water in your mouth. What about just like pouring water over your head? I mean, you know, when we watch the Tour de France every summer in July, it's hot in the Alps. We see a lot of guys just pouring bottle after bottle after bottle of water over their heads. Does that actually do anything? Does that is that uh, I think probably some evaporative cooling is 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 working there, right? Is is it useful in any other way? I think that at this point, we're at a really interesting intersection between what's perception and physiologically what's actually cooling you down. I've done a lot of research in this area, and uh, one of them involved a head cooling study. This proprietary head cooling device was created. We use multiple conditions. We use one where the the cooling device worked the entire time, and it just provided cooling and cooling and cooling. We were doing this on cyclists doing time trials. But then I could also alter the head cooling device so that it only cooled for, say, 10 seconds and then took a 30-second break. And believe it or not, with performance, the condition that showed the best improvement in performance was the one where there was intermittent cooling. So even though we weren't cooling the entire time, even though we were actually um, removing less heat than the 100% condition, the body perceived that there was more cooling going on. Now, we've all experienced this. You jump into a cold pool or into the ocean, and it is frigid initially. You give it 30 seconds or a minute or two, and it doesn't feel so cold anymore. Our cold sensitivity sort of, it changes once we're in that new environment. And if you applied 100% cooling to the head, Eventually, the body kind of forgot any cooling was going on, and the subjects didn't feel any cooler, and and the performance showed that. But when it was a pulse on for 10 seconds and then a pulse off for 30 seconds, it gave time for those sensors to reset. And every time, boom, 10 more seconds of cooling, you felt this wave come over you, and that helped individuals ride harder. Hmm. But, I mean, it is cooling you as well, right? I mean, that's the, that's, the, that's the difference between that and just swirling some water in your mouth. The evaporation of water can actually remove more heat than drinking it can. If we look at sort of kilojoules of heat from the evaporation of water, it is significantly higher. And so in a sense, Kaylee, we're better pouring that water over our head if we want to cool ourselves down. Now, 
we talked about environment in the beginning here. In Colorado, that technique works really, really well. It is very dry here, and we evaporate really well. If we're riding in the northeast or some other humid location and we're already soaking wet, well, we're wet because that's not being evaporated. It's not that you sweat more when you're in Georgia versus Colorado. <laughs> it's just that because of the humidity in the air, there's not the gradient that allows that evaporation. So if you're out running, riding, doing whatever you do, and your shirt is relatively dry, but you're feeling hot, sure, grab that water from the aid station, pour it over your head, it's gonna help you cool down. If you're dripping on the ground with sweat, you are obviously not evaporating very effectively. You're better off in that situation drinking that water because it's gonna be a lot more useful than dropping on the ground. So the pouring water over your head, I mean, that's a huge one with cyclists. And if you watch pros, one of the things they really like to do is get what are called ice stockings, where you, you get women's knee-high nylons. Mm. You put a bunch of ice in them, and then you put them down the back of your jersey, and the ice very slowly melts and just gets this nice cooling effect going down your back for a long time and a lot of cyclists swear by it. I still remember with uh, with the team, we were at a race in Arkansas and I went to the supermarket. I wasn't even thinking about this. I bought a whole bunch of nylons. I bought some fingernail polish to touch up the paint job on our, our frames. <laughs> I go to the checkout. This woman looks at what I'm buying, looks at my shaved legs, <laughs> just kind of gives me a look and like, I'm... <laughs> Thank you. Not even <laughs> try yeah. to explain this one. <laughs> but don't, don't mind me. Just having some fun. I'm having a great weekend. What do you want? <laughs> I remember my environmental extremes class at CSU. Our professor said, do not pour water over your body. It actually has a detrimental effect. This is a uh, 2012 study in, in um, the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science and Sports. It's actually a pretty respected one where they brought up one of the criticisms of pouring water over your body, which is it causes vasoconstriction. So mm -hmm. basically your body feels it's cooler, says, now I don't want blood flowing to the surface, which means you stop sweating. Um, mm -hmm. So you get a little less of that evaporative effect. And more importantly, all that heat in your core that you're trying to get out to the surface and let go is no longer getting out to your skin. Right, so because the heat that is building up. Right, because that's one of the ways that your body naturally cools you is essentially just putting as much blood out near your skin as possible. Right. right? Yeah. Okay. So this study actually tested it in performance. It was with runners. They had them do 90 minutes at a fairly easy steady state and then do a, a 5K run. During the 5K run, there was zero difference whether they did external cooling or not. Um, in, in all the, the different metrics. So they basically said it didn't help. Uh, there was, during the steady state, a perceptual advantage. They didn't see any effect in core temperature. Core temperature was the same whether you used the external cooling or not. So their ultimate conclusion was at a steady state, not super hard effort for a long period of time in the heat, yeah, pouring water over your body will help. Yeah. Hmm. And that's the difficult part with research is that you need to first determine what is the study actually investigating. And you can find research that support really any side of an argument. Right. And when we look at stuff like this, fake you know, news. <laughs> fake news. <laughs> when we look at stuff like this and we use a, a 5K as a model, you know, perhaps in that situation, core temperature wasn't the limiting factor for these individuals. And so you can do anything you want. If we feed people in this condition, it probably doesn't have too much of an effect on their performance because glycogen depletion isn't, uh, isn't a factor there. Uh, and so for me, I'm always looking at stuff like this with a critical eye. But the concept that you're talking about is, is very well known, and it's especially well known to athletic trainers who deal with heat stress in athletes all the time. And so, in my opinion, I think it's a, a very good way to remove heat. Again, assuming that the environmental conditions are appropriate for that. As always, we will put both Rob's studies and the studies that I mentioned, we'll, we'll put those references on the website. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, the brand that connects bicycling's most talented innovators with the sport's early adopters. Power meters, Quark Collector, ShockWiz, and the Calvin app are just a few of their innovations. Cork continues to refine its fast track pipeline for new products and innovations. So be sure to follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the latest. 
and I actually just used the Calvin this morning to try to calibrate my power meter. And when I did my 20 minute time trial, it was still sad. <laughs> I guess it only does Can so much. Can you use it to uncalibrate your power meter? Yeah, you could, which is what I really should have done. <laughs> because I did that whole time trial going, and that's my real numbers because oh, I no. just fully calibrated. So I've got nothing to hide. Well, yeah. Still a big fan. <laughs> what about the classic uh, the ice vest that's become very popular in time trials these days? I mean, is that, is that potentially too much cooling? Ice vests are typically used while people are warming up and when they're not at rest. And so we have a much better balance of heat production versus heat removal. But I agree, if you were sitting around watching TV with an ice vest on, <laughs> you'd be shivering. You wouldn't be doing anything. Even if you were sitting in a fairly hot environment, there's too much of an imbalance there. But there's a lot of pre-cooling strategies like that. Megan Ross, we can put this research up, that she was one of the pioneers, if I remember right, in drinking the slushy and cooling from the inside out as opposed to just doing external. What they found was that, I believe it was um, ice towels across your shoulders and drinking a slushy was sort of the best way to pre-cool the body. Hmm. If we cover too much surface area, we end up in this too cold of a place and we have bad thermal regulation. But they found that even prior to warming up, if they did this technique of drinking a slushy, and putting ice towels across your shoulders that you would actually maintain a lower core temperature even even after you did your warm-up and got to the start line of the race you're still in a better place and that was interesting to me i had figured that that exercise during the warm-up would would obliterate any sort of core temperature and you'd end up right at the exact same place and and that's just not true interesting so if you drink cold water, it just acts as like a heat sink in your belly. Is that essentially how that's working? It, it yes, does. Actually. Yeah, hmm. exactly. Um, you know, Trevor, if you want to speak to sort of calories, I know this is right up your alley and what a calorie actually means. Oh, we, have we covered this one yet? <laughs> we have, we have okay. covered calories. Yes, we have. We've covered calories because you tested me one time. And, and you remember I, the answer? And I, I did not remember the answer, but I remember it right now. What is it? It's the... Uh, amount of energy it takes to raise the temperature of a certain amount of water, a certain amount of temperature. <laughs> a this liter is, of water, one degree a Celsius. A liter of water, one degree Celsius. This is way back to my AP biology days. Sorry, Miss Allard. You if, did not do If a good we're job. talking about the, the <laughs> kilocalories, yes. An actual little c calorie is less. a cubic <clears throat> centimeter of water, one degree Celsius. But there they're, they're ultimately the same. It's just how big of a unit you're talking. So, so I failed again. I'm yeah. sorry. So yeah, when <laughs> when you drink that water, it takes energy to increase the temperature. And so if you drink water that's 33 degrees Fahrenheit and you want to bring that all the way up to your normal core temperature of about 98 degrees, maybe a little bit higher when you're exercising, then that's a lot of calories that that water is going to absorb as it raises its temperature up. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's very much a heat sink. So that study I was talking about before where they uh, put the slushy in, in the athlete's mouth and had them swirl it around and spit it out, they also had them drink it. And that helped performance even more, and it helped maintain core temperature even more. But they, they, they studied a variety of different factors to figure out where it was having its effect. They looked at, at heart rate. They looked at uh, peripheral blood flow. They looked at core temperature. The only place that they found a big difference was temperature within the gut. So it was doing actually exactly what you're saying, and that was the term they used in the study. So, Kayla, I'm impressed. <laughs> is they said that the, this ice slushy was creating a heat sink in the gut. You know why I know that term? Disc breaks. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> my, my tech background comes back and is, is handy sometimes. So, <laughs> so we've established that Tricking your body into thinking it's cooler than it actually is is potentially dangerous. There are definitely ways to keep yourself cool. We've, we've discussed a couple of those just now. Obviously, drinking water, pouring it over your head. What else can people do? You have a hot race. You're racing in August. It's, it's guaranteed to be hot. What can people do to prepare for something like that? Well, so the first and obvious thing people are going to go to is hydration. Hydration is a really complex subject, and it's actually quite controversial on the pros and cons of hydrate and hydration and how to hydrate. 
we're not going to go into that in this podcast. That might be a future podcast, but we're not right now going to talk that much about um, how to effectively hydrate yourself. The one thing I am going to bring up that I thought was really interesting is in that study uh, where they talked about the ice slushy creating a, a heat sink, they brought up the point that when you're, t- you're exercising in the heat, that rise in core temperature is going to shut you down before dehydration does. That athletes actually have a pretty good ability to manage a a fairly large range of dehydration. So they said it's actually, they felt it was more important to be consuming for maintaining core temperature than hydration status. And we're not going to say a ton about the, the pros and cons of that right now, But the point that they did make that I really liked is too many athletes are drinking liquids that are air temperature. And so they're too focused on the hydration and not the cooling factor. And I do agree with what the study said is you should be drinking cold liquids or even those ice slushies in really hot temperatures to create that heat sink to help maintain the core temperature. But Rob, how do you feel? Yeah, you know, I feel I feel similarly where the body can definitely tolerate a large range of dehydration. Now, we do know that at some some level of dehydration, we are going to be reducing our power output, that it is going to have an effect on performance. Where exactly that occurs in people is somewhat nebulous and it's fairly individual. What is important when we're reading research on this is to look at exactly how the research is being conducted and A lot of the research that has shown hydration is important for thermal regulation did so in an environment that was not necessarily representative of riding your bike outside, which is what we all like to do. So if we're setting somebody up in a room on a trainer and we just have a fan blowing at their head and that fan's only going five miles an hour, we're not getting the same environmental conditions as we are outside. And in studies that are set up like that, then there is a huge tie of hydration to thermal regulation. But when we set up studies that maybe they're in more of a wind tunnel situation and we're getting a much more representative outside riding experience, then suddenly we don't necessarily tie thermal regulation to hydration anymore because the body has all of the other mechanisms available to it through evaporative cooling or conductive convective cooling. And suddenly being hydrated 100% isn't as important for thermal regulation anymore. And that might be what we're experiencing when we're outside. But I think that there needs to be more research specifically in that area before we can say definitively what's going on. I mean, you know, I think in general, it's probably a good idea to be hydrated. In general, (laughs) it is a good idea to be hydrated. Everyone would agree with that. You know, the one sort of interesting bit about this is when we are adapting to heat, Uh, One thing that occurs is that our plasma volume or the amount of water essentially in our blood increases. That's one of the ways that we adapt to that hot environment. And um, so we do know that that hydration, you know, it is important to help maintain the plasma volume. Uh, And there are products on the market, um, sort of the preload hydration or the hyperhydration products that can help mimic this by increasing the sodium and the bicarbonate content in your blood, you can hold on to additional water. So you brought up heat acclimation, and ultimately that is one of your best methods of of handling the heat is to spend time dealing with the heat, learning to deal with the heat. So if you're going to go do a race in a very hot environment, don't be like me, the Canadian, coming from somewhere nice and cold and jump into a hot environment and think you're going to perform at your best. You, You need that time at that temperature or at the, the hot temperatures to acclimate. And, and Rob pointed out some of the really important things that you see uh, with heat acclimation. One of them is that you see about a 13% rise in plasma volume. Uh, you see improvements in stroke volume. That's how much uh, blood your heart can pump per beat. And another big one is sweat response. Once you've acclimated to the heat, you are actually... I always thought it would be you'd be less responsive to sweat, but you're actually more responsive. You're going to sweat uh, sooner and you're going to sweat a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. 
and these, as you know, Trevor said, we've all felt this before, right? That first hot day in Colorado, we're kind of getting into our warm days right now. We're recording this a little earlier than you're listening to it. And 70 degrees feels like 120 degrees the first day that you're out in it. And I know soon enough in the middle of summer, 70 is going to feel really nice and cool. And so this is a very transient situation because our, our cardiac output increases. As Trevor said, our stroke volume goes up. Um, then we physiologically are benefiting from this. But depending on where you live, as he said, you know, maybe you're doing a, a race in a, a warm environment. There are some ways that we can, I don't want to say get an artificial, but there are some ways that we can alter our environment so that we can induce these adaptations. And, you know, a lot of people will, will use a sauna and they'll do long, hot, uh, or at least long dehydrating training and then go sit in a sauna for approximately 40 minutes. You do that for a week or two prior to an event, and uh, you'll induce these adaptations as if you were living in a, a warm environment. So you don't actually have to do the, the exercise in the sauna then? If, if anything, it's probably yeah. better to not do it in the sauna because if you're, doing, if you're doing this exercise in the hot environment and you're not adapted, and even if you are adapted, you're going to be decreasing your workload, so your training is going to be of lower quality. Hmm. Now, I personally don't have a sauna, and I don't have a gym <laughs> membership that gets me a sauna. And so there are other ways of doing it. You know, you'll, you'll hear about people uh, talking um, about riding in their bathroom with the shower on and being in that hot, humid environment. I don't necessarily think you need to ride for that, you know, <laughs> what I just mentioned. But taking a warm bath does the exact same thing. Fill that bathtub up with some nice hot water. You know, I, I believe uh, 100 to 105 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, is plenty. And, and lay in that hot water after and expose your body to that warm environment and you'll start inducing these adaptive changes. Going back to the sauna, though, I will say be careful. I had a teammate who did that, went out for a long ride, got in the sauna, uh, was in there for about 40 minutes, and then he stood up and passed out, yep. fell over and cracked his head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at that point, he's dehydrated, right? His blood volume's a little bit lower, so his blood pressure is low because of that. You're in the sauna, and so you're, um, everything is vasodilated, your blood vessels trying to move that hot blood around, and you can definitely end up in that place where your blood pressure is just too low, and you stand up and, and you faint. Yeah. <laughs> pad, pad those benches. Keep, <laughs> make sure you have a friend in there with you to uh, make sure everything's uh, on, on the up and up. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember hearing about riders uh, doing similar things before the World Championships in Qatar yep. uh, last year because they were it was going to be so hot, and actually, same thing for the Rio Olympic Games because it was spe expected to be so hot and humid. That yeah, essentially, riders were. I actually heard about them doing like interval sets in a sauna, <laughs> yeah. which sounds totally miserable, but. Uh, it, it seemed to work for him. So for those specific things, you know, when we're talking about a one percent improvement in performance, right? We're and and this isn't just for your um, masters race on Saturday, but when we're talking about world championships and Olympics, then training in that hot environment it, it might give you a little bit of an edge mm -hmm. because you can tough it out a little bit more because you're used to that because you're not suffering quite as bad. Mm -hmm. You just have to keep it in balance. So I remember back in two thousand eight, I was involved in some of the studies up in Canada, uh, unfortunately as a subject. If you want, I could toss up a really good picture of me with sweat bags on my arm in a heat tent. Be uh, being miserable. a subject is always the wrong side of the <laughs> stick on that one. <laughs> oh, especially when they handed me that uh, core temperature thermometer and told me what I had to do with it. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so they wanted to do a training camp inside a heated trailer. Mm-hmm. With these poor cyclists training four or five hours a day on trainers in, in, in a heated room. Yep. And some of the cyclists, I think Swain, Tuff, and Aaron Willock, and a few others just went, no, sorry. Yep. See you later. And, well, yes, it probably adapted people a little bit to heat. It so burnt them out, and it was so hard to do that training, it wasn't worth the gains. Yep. So you have to keep it in balance. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> Hard much more concise way to say it <laughs> in general that's that's my general training advice yeah don't go crazy with any of this stuff let's talk a little bit about sodium loading and i know that uh you two are maybe maybe not totally in uh 
of the same mind on sodium floating? Am I getting that sense? <laughs> um, you know, I think that Trevor and I always have some some point of agreement. And if we talk long enough, we eventually agree at the end. We, we probably agree in the beginning, we argue in the middle, and we agree again. You know, I had touched upon sodium loading with hyperhydration previously, and that having the additional sodium content can help increase your blood plasma volume and hydration that way. But an important point to remember is that uh, when we have extra water in our body, we're going to be heavier. And if you're starting out a stage maybe with a lot of climbing and it's not overly hot, we're carrying around extra weight that we don't necessarily need to. You know, this is only going to be worthwhile if dehydration is going to be an important factor in what we're doing. For me, uh, sodium loading, if you want my personal you know, use and opinion, if I'm in, uh, say, a cyclocross race and it's early in the year, you know, we start racing in, in September, it's still pretty hot here in uh, Colorado, and I can't really drink over the course of that hour, then I at least feel more comfortable with sodium loading. My mouth is a little bit less cottony, and perception-wise, at the very least, it, it works out well for me. I don't feel the need to drink where otherwise I'm in the middle of the race and I'm dying for a drink, and that makes your ride slow. But if we're talking about, you know, big climbing stages in the, um, you know, tour of California, then I don't think sodium loading is necessarily helpful to your performance. Yeah, we were talking about this again off mic, but, you know, we've heard about Team Sky doing things like functional dehydration where they actually let their riders essentially get dehydrated just so that they're lighter for the last climb. That's not necessarily the kind of thing that we want to recommend that uh, your average amateur cyclist is, is messing with, but paying attention to how much... Uh, or how hydrated you are, it is going to be relevant to how heavy you are, and then therefore how well you're going to you're going to climb. So this winter, I had a bit of a surprise visit from you. I'm living up in Toronto, and I get an email from Rob saying, "Hey, I'm coming up." At which point, I was like, "Why are you coming to Toronto in February?" <laughs> it turns out there is a giant wind tunnel at a car plant just outside of Toronto in in Oshawa. And you were doing some pretty cool studies there on, on heat regulation, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, you know, the University of Ontario uh, teamed up with General Motors and essentially created environmental chambers uh, for automobiles. And one of them, as you said, is, is a wind tunnel. These were originally constructed so that General Motors could test their cars to see if the gaskets on the windows leaked in extreme temperatures. But we were able to use it to essentially recreate outside riding in a very controlled condition. And so I got a bunch of subjects together. We put them in the wind tunnel. And for this one, we kind of froze them a little bit. I was interested in testing outerwear in cool or cold uh, environmental conditions. Um, we are about 39 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, we had workloads set at an appropriate metabolic heat production. Um, all of this was calculated, and um, it was done per body meter squared of body surface area so that heat uh, leaving the body would be equal for people of different sizes. And I was able to look at the microclimate that existed between the skin and the membranes of the jackets that we were testing, looking at skin temperature, looking at humidity, looking at how cold people felt. As we said, perception is an important part of this. And it's information uh, that we gather like this through research that can really help improve products uh, that cyclists get to wear. Um, and it was important that we did it in this environment, right, with this essentially um, wind flow and temperatures and uh, radiant heat exchange that was going to be similar to if you were pedaling down the road uh, through your favorite cycling location. So, so the one thing that's important to understand here is that uh, Rob was testing Canadians at 39 degrees, so this was actually a heat study. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to take a quick moment to, to do a call-out that I've been wanting to do for a while to the Morning Glory Cycling Club, because that's the team I coach, and they all participated in the study, and just wanted to say hi, guys. <laughs> love working with you. And I love putting you in wind tunnels and freezing uh, you. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say that... Um, on the second day, we had a lot less participants than we did on the first day. Uh, I think people realized it wasn't nearly as fun as they thought it was going Bit to be. Bit chilly. Clearly, clothing has a, has a pretty dramatic impact on your ability to, to stay cool. Uh, I mean, I think that anybody who has accidentally thought it was going to be a bit cooler that day, threw on the, the heavier base layer and went out and, uh, and, and then sweated their bum off uh, for a couple hours knows that. Yep. So what, what 
can we do from a clothing perspective to keep core temperature down? And what are clothing manufacturers doing these days to try to keep core temperature down? I mean, is it is it as simple as just putting mesh everywhere? That seems to be what everyone's doing. <laughs> I, I wish I wish that it was so simple. And prior to really being in in the apparel industry. I thought that it was that simple. You know, mesh makes sense, doesn't it? But if you think people that live in truly hot environments in the Middle East, they don't walk around naked all the time, right? They're covered up with clothing from head to toe. Now it's clothing of like colors and it has a lot of layers and it traps heat. In that situation, the environment is so hot. It's so much hotter than the body that we need to insulate the body from the outside environment. And in a sense, that kind of carries over to cycling. Mesh is great for evaporative cooling, but it allows the sun's rays and energy to, boom, shine right on your skin. And you might get a lot of radiant heating because of that. And so when we talk about thermoregulation in clothing, it's really not a simple answer. And it's one that we're in the midst of, of changing and challenging right now. It is important that we pay attention to things like color, but... At the same time, uh, the other research is saying that dark colors might be better at absorbing the heat and not letting it pass through to the skin. At this point in time, kind of what we know is that lighter colors are going to help reflect some of that. Personal research has said that a thin white garment doesn't do any different than a thin black garment in terms of preventing your body from getting hot. Okay, so base layers. I I just referenced base layers in terms of like, I've definitely worn too thick a base layer on a day when I thought it was going to be a little cooler and, and it was very uncomfortable. It is kind of a running debate, I guess, uh, whether you wear a base layer when it's hot. And I've heard both sides of this. Some people say, okay, yes, it helps pull the the sweat away from my body or whatever. And some people say just wear as little as possible. I actually tend to like base layers up until it gets pretty darn warm uh, because I, I don't – I feel like it does handle the sweat a little bit better. Have you come across anything that is more definitive than than that? Yeah, I I like that we're narrowing this down to base layers and the heat, right? Because with everything, the answer is really, well, it depends. You know, it depends on those environmental conditions. In the heat, um, if you're working moderately hard and you're sweating a moderate amount, then a base layer might be helpful. And the reason for that is we sweat first in certain locations before other locations decide that they want to get wet and join the party. And with a base layer, what happens is we can move moisture from those specific locations and we can spread that out so that it evaporates better. So if you think you typically start sweating on your forehead first, all right, and if we're dripping off of our forehead, that dripped water isn't doing anything to cool us down. Well, it's the same thing. We tend to start sweating sort of between our shoulder blades at the top of our back first. And if that's puddling sweat there, not doing anything to help us out. But with that base layer on, and I say base layer because they're typically made of materials that are going to move sweat better than some jerseys will, then we can spread that moisture across our back and we can evaporate it from a larger surface area, which means that we can get more cooling because we're actually evaporating everything. Now, the downside with base layers is that they're moving that evaporation off the skin. And so we talked about how drinking water can help cool you because it takes energy to heat that water up. Well, it takes a lot more energy to evaporate water. But if we do that off the surface of the skin, then the cooling that comes from that is actually less because we've sort of broken that thermal bridge, so to say, and we've moved that phase transfer away from the skin into the outer layer of that base layer now. In a lot of environments, it's okay that we lost a a few percent of cooling efficiency there because we were actually able to evaporate that water. Now, if we end up, Kaylee, you're you're spot on, and this is where sort of intuition or or folk wisdom um, can come in. If we move to an environment where it's really, really hot and you're sweating everywhere, base layer is not helping you anymore. There's no need to move the sweat because everything's wet at this point. At that point, we might as well just increase our cooling efficiency by having it evaporate off of your skin. Now, there is some technology out there that supposedly helps the evaporation based on the shape of the fibers, and we won't go into that. Some really solid research still needs to be done in that area. 
Um, and so there is potential that base layers can improve evaporation in the future. But for all intents and purposes at this point in time, if you're struggling up your Sunshine Canyon climb and you're dripping with sweat everywhere, there's no need for a base layer. Unzip that jersey and let that cool air evaporate it off of your skin. But if you're out and you're riding, say, on the flats, moderately hard, and you're only sweating from certain areas, a base layer might be able to spread that sweat and, and help you cool off better. Well, I'm glad to hear I got one thing right today, which is my use of base layers. I'm a professional base layer wearer, apparently. Let's let's leave everybody with a couple take-homes. Rob, why don't you go first? We, we've talked about a lot of different things today. Let's try to sum up as quickly as we can what people can be can be thinking about and doing as, as they head into the heat. Yeah, it's extremely important to remember that heat is a byproduct of the work that we do, and it is inevitable that we're going to produce heat. Uh, it is also extremely important to remember that it, we need to deal with that heat. And if we don't, we can end up in a bad place, at least a place that might affect our performance, and at worst, a place that might put us into a danger zone. There are methods to deal with that, pre-cooling, drinking slushies, Things of that nature can be very worthwhile for both safety and uh, performance improvements. Pouring water over ourselves if we're in a a dry um, sort of environment and uh, our clothes aren't completely soaked with sweat already can be a very effective manner. And if we are wet, then we ought to just drink that water because it's not going to be effective if we pour it on ourselves. And the last thing is that when it comes to performance, uh, perception, what we perceive the environment to be and things that affect that, are almost, if not as important as actual physiological cooling, and that the deception trials that have gone on really help our understanding of thermal regulation within the body. But again, don't fool yourself into the danger zone. <laughs> that would be bad. Way to the danger zone. <laughs> that was inevitable. <laughs> that, was, that was Trevor. <laughs> uh, Trevor, what, what can you add for us? So I think Rob did a great job of of covering it from the physiological standpoint. So I'm going to cover it a little bit from the racer who has suffered heat stroke more times than he should have approach and and tell you some of the things I've learned in, in racing. First one being acclimate. If you are going and doing a race in extreme temperature, don't show up the night before and try to race. You're going to have a really miserable day. If at all possible, if you're traveling to that race, get there a few days beforehand or figure out a way to get that acclimation started. Second thing I'm going to say is don't sit around or over warm up for a race. So I've done races where it's 100 degrees, 100% humidity, and you see people sitting there on trainers warming up. All they're doing is raising that core temperature and getting themselves closer to the point where they're going to crack. Or they get to the start line an hour before the race, and they sit there in the heat and bake. At the Tour of Tobago, which is 100 degrees and 100% every day, I've got it timed so that we can leave our nice air-conditioned hotel and get to the start line every day two minutes before the race starts. And we always have an advantage over the people that are there an hour beforehand. Finally, this is probably not one you're expecting to hear in a podcast, beg beg and grab and get anything you can. This is unfortunately an experience I've learned. I mean, have people in the feed zones for you with ice, water, make sure you're getting enough bottles, but often you're going to find yourself in a race in the heat where you're not going to have either broad enough yourself or you're not going to have the person in the feed zone. Ask people, especially if they have feeders before the race, can one of your feeders hold a bottle for me? Just make sure you have a lot of avenues to make sure to get cold fluids to either drink or dump over your head as much as you can. I learned that the hard way back at a race called uh, Tour of Tuna. It was a 104-mile stage in the heat. The first feed zone, my feeder handed me a bottle of water that was one of the other racers' bottles. It had nothing but sodium in it to the point that it was undrinkable. So I couldn't drink that. Got to the second feed zone. I was dying. Our feeder had gotten lost. And I didn't get a bottle, and I was absolutely dying in that race. I'm thinking of all the times I heard one of the pros in the race saying, hey, anybody want to finish this or anybody need a bottle? And thinking, why did I not take that? (laughs) I have very little to add, (laughs) unsurprisingly, because this is a 
you guys are both experts in the physiology behind staying cool, and I am sort of not. Uh, nonetheless, I will say that from personal experience, the ice sock thing has always has always worked well for me. The ladies' pantyhose full of ice thing. Uh, I've definitely used that to, to great success before. And again, from personal experience, uh, acclimatize to heat is, is absolutely vital for me in particular. Uh, I'm not a big sweater. And so when I just show up in somewhere hot and have not been somewhere hot, I just, I just like, I'm just parched and dead. It's awful. So yeah, I have very, very little to add other than, uh, I think that we've had, we've given you half a dozen different things that you can do heading into your next hot bicycle race or bicycle ride and hopefully be a little bit more comfortable and ride a little bit better. So that was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. And while you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Velo News Podcast, uh, which covers news about news from the week in cycling. I'm also on that podcast. Uh, we generally chat about whatever's happened in the past week, shoot the shit and make some jokes. It's a good time. You can become a fa- fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production of velonews and Trevor Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Rob Pickles, Trevor Connor, I'm Kaylee Fretz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.